Chapter 3 Kenneth woke in chains. His last glimpse into Aidan's cold eyes still pierced his heart. The gaze had burned an indelible image upon Kenneth's soul, an inescapable, haunting image. Gone. He was gone? Never again would Kenneth see him, hear him, touch him. How could he have lost his brother the boy who lived to wrestle, race, and watch the stars shoot by in the dark summer skies? Together, they had grown from boys to men. Though death was no respecter of age, surely eighteen was too young to die. The pain in Kenneth's gut was real, tearing at his soul, as if he was rotting from the inside out. The ache was incurable. How could this have happened? Kenneth asked himself countless times over. There was no answer. There would never be an answer. Kenneth had been with Aidan nearly every day of his life. He was always the first person Kenneth saw at sunrise. He could see his brother's dark head hiding from the light, trying to steal another moment of sleep before their father called them to chores. Now he was dead. Kenneth could not piece together all that had happened. Seeing his brother standing on the edge of the cliff and accepting death was more than Kenneth could bear. His brother's expression had held no hope except the expectation of being released from pain. Kenneth reasoned with himself that it was his brother's burns that overtook him, that the pain must have pushed him beyond his will to live. A deep sadness tore at Kenneth, stifling his strength, and even his desire, to move forward. Did it matter? What was left to lose? What was left to gain? Kenneth gazed at his chains and thought of his father. He had already lost two sons, would he soon lose a third? God, why? Where is your Christ? Your messengers speak of hope, and of your great might. I know of neither. The simple life he had known as a boy had left him, fleeing far away from where he now stood. The muddy path he would soon march, the path to captivity, the path to hell, was now before him. The Viking chains that bound his hands and feet bound his soul as well. They were a terrible reminder of all he had lost. Four men on horseback arrived at the bank of a large river that cut through the northern mountains of Dalriada. A warm orange sun hung to their backs in the eastern sky. The retreating rains of summer had caused the river to recede, exposing much of the earthy river bed. From the distance, the men on horseback were not able to discern what they were viewing on the muddy bank ahead. Though it was common for fallen trees and branches to collect on the banks, the object appeared more like a person than a log. The four riders moved up the bank to gain a better view. There, they dismounted their horses and tromped halfway across the soft, mushy bank on foot toward the mysterious object. When the mud grew ankle-deep, the four men stopped, still unable to identify the mangled mass. Then one of the men called to their leader, Grogan, what do you want to do? I say we head back to the horses, one man replied. No, we're not heading back to the horses, Grogan replied. We're going to see what it is. Grogan was a muscular man with a ruddy complexion and an overgrowth of stubble that ran the length of his neck. He was also notably older than the other men. Grogan left his men and approached the figure. His feet sunk deeper into the mud with each step. As he moved, he scanned the river, combing his eyes up and down its banks as if expecting to glimpse something, or someone. Nearing the twisted heap, Grogan gazed at the form and realized what it was the body of a young man clutching a broken log. Grogan surveyed the far river bank a second time and glanced at his men. The three were standing still with swords drawn, gawking back at him. 
The ruddy-faced Grogan stooped next to the body and turned it with his thick, tattooed arms. The body separated from the log and remained unmoving on the bank. Grogan winced and turned his head at the sight of the burnt flesh hanging from the young man's face. The boy's white and shriveled skin was detaching from his cheek. The burns extended down his neck and across his left shoulder. Grogan calls to the others, it's a Scot. A second man slopped across the muddy bank. Reaching Grogan, the man stepped to the body, placed his foot under the tattered mass of skin and bones, and pushed. The lifeless frame rocked in place and settled back into the mud. The man gaped at the young man's ruined face. It was somebody he didn't know, and if it was a Scot, it was somebody he didn't care to know. His eyes fixed on the dead flesh along the boy's upper body, and the grotesqueness of the burns mesmerized him. Slowly, the man bent down and studied the boy's brow and cheek. Then he noticed a mud-covered charm tied around the boy's neck. He grasped the charm and rubbed away the mud. A grin eased over his face, and he tightened his palm around his new prize. It's not yours, Grogan muttered. Why not? He's dead. If he was dead, then that silver charm would belong to Angus. But the boy appears to be alive. Watch his chest, he's still breathing. The Pict let go of the necklace and rose to his feet. He'd be better off dead, the man murmured. He twisted his sword in his hand and peered at Grogan with a smirk. Put it away, we'll let Angus make that decision. Get him on your horse. You have the honor of carrying him back to Perth. Just make sure he doesn't die along the way. A large raven soared overhead in the otherwise empty skies of northwest Dalriada. The ominous black bird perched on a dead branch of an aging oak and crowed mockingly at the wretched procession below. Kenneth cursed the creature under his breath. He had enough misery to suffice. The iron shackles had worn blisters on his ankles, making every step more miserable than the last. His wrists were equally blistered, and the constant rubbing drove him mad. He stared ahead at the next hill. How long would this march continue? How far to this pending hell? A heavy-set Viking riding past Kenneth yelled something unintelligible and disappeared over the hill a hill that hid the answers to Kenneth's questions. One by one, the prisoners in front of Kenneth reached the hill's crest. Each gasped when they saw the other side. When Kenneth reached the hilltop, his eyes beheld a sight he had never seen. The structure was monstrous. The image stole the air from his lungs and he then understood the prior groans of the captives preceding him. The fortress in the distance, stood like a grinning giant eager to devour him. Its walls rose fifteen feet in height, formed with massive tree trunks sunk side by side in the earth. Columns of mud and stone formed the corners of the fort and stood as high as the neighboring walls. The ground in front of the fortress extended far and wide with a thick muck that had been trampled and beaten under the weight of a thousand hooves. A scan of the structure quickly revealed that its construction remained ongoing. Kenneth now realized why the Vikings had taken captives, more labor to complete the work. The fort's front wall faced east. It was half-finished and served as the entrance to the fort. Slaves, as well as Vikings on horseback, moved in and out of the entryway like busy ants. Several stacks of fallen timber lay piled in front of the fort. A dozen men heaved axes, stripping the timber, while others discarded unwanted limbs onto a nearby heap. Along the south wall of the fort, a small army of slaves slogged forward in a single file line. 
Some toted large stones in their arms, while others hoisted shoulder sacks filled with smaller stones. Guards bearing whips and swords stood watch over the prisoners as they migrated through the fort entrance, burdened under their heavy loads. As Kenneth approached the structure, he took special note of the slaves. They were haggard and exhausted. Their clothes were tattered from where their flesh bore the scars of scourging. One particular man, piling discarded limbs from the downed trees, caught Kenneth's attention. The man had no eye in his right socket. The side of his face drooped and he carried his head with a tilt. Kenneth noted another man walking with a severe limp. A distinctly swollen knee caused him to favor the bad leg each time he stepped and hobbled forward. The large stone he carried didn't help. As Kenneth neared the lame man, a muscular barrel-chested Viking yelled at the man, scolding him for falling behind. Again, the guard yelled at the man, move it. The man's steps quickened and he labored to keep pace with the moving line. Suddenly, a long leather whip snapped through the air and cracked across the man's back. The man dropped his stone and tumbled, his face smacking hard against the ground. Kenneth froze beside his fellow captives. The Viking hovered over the man and began shouting. Kenneth glanced at the captives beside him, waiting for a reaction, hoping for a reaction. No one moved to aid the fallen man. Kenneth brooded in anger. He felt the urge to do something, anything? That Viking bastard. The man needs help, but I can't help with these chains. What if I had no chains, would I help him then? His answer shamed him. He knew, too, that it would shame his father. A Viking on horseback approached and abruptly passed. He yelled at the line of fresh captives, and the progression moved forward into the fort. Kenneth's head hung low as he ambled behind the others. He passed the Viking and the lame man and then heard the Viking curse again. And again, he heard the sharp crack of the whip. Inside the walls of the fort, Kenneth slowed and peered at his surroundings. Several prisoners were filling sacks of dirt dug from a hole in the corner of the fort where the front wall met the north wall. The hole appeared roughly eight feet wide and deep enough to bury a man. Kenneth couldn't see the men digging, only buckets of dirt being lifted with ropes. From the length of the ropes, he guessed the hole was nearly ten feet deep. Several skinned tree trunks lay next to the hole. With the fortress sitting beside a small river, Kenneth wondered why the Vikings were digging a well, if it even was a well. The captives continued their progression into the fort until they were commanded to halt at its center. A dozen Vikings encircled them and corralled them like sheep in a herd. The two carts in the procession were pulled into the circle, and the imprisoned captives were released and made to stand with Kenneth and the others. Kenneth's gaze swept over his fellow captives. They were the people of his village. They looked different now, doomed and hopeless. They showed no emotion, save fear, a fear that filled their eyes and gripped their hearts. A sharp jab suddenly struck Kenneth's backside. Forward? Kenneth heard a loud voice behind him. Kenneth turned to see the butt of a Viking spear leveled waist high. Forward? The man repeated. It was one of the many guards who had ridden beside the captives over the last day and a half, and the same guard who had plagued the captives with a perpetual barking. Kenneth gazed long at the man and wished him dead. Kenneth turned and inched forward, pressing together with the others in the center courtyard of the fort. In total, the captives numbered nearly three dozen. Most were men, all older than Kenneth. They moved without vigor in a comatose state, 
staring at the ground in a dispirited stupor. Only Gavin, who had earlier helped Kenneth save Aidan and Nessa, made eye contact. The young Scot's glances shifted to and fro, peering at the Vikings and then at Kenneth. The Vikings tightened their circle around the captives. They began jeering one another and wagering which Scot would be the first to die. Several pointed at the Scots and taunted them, shouting, For you, logs. And, for you, stones. Others cracked whips for amusement. Kenneth gazed down at his chains. He was the only captive bound in irons. He knew why he was chained, and he remembered Aidan. A whip suddenly snapped beside Kenneth's ear, and he startled and jumped. Then Kenneth spun and peered at the guard holding the whip, watching as the man ran his hand along its woven leather strands. The Viking glared at Kenneth, wearing a smug grin as if daring him to fight. The man was of medium build for a Viking, yet he likely drew his smugness from his handsome features and his tangled blonde hair that hung just below his shoulders. Kenneth's blood boiled. His chest bowed outward, and his fist tightened. Then the shifting crowd of captives pressed against Kenneth on all sides, and he slowly turned away. Once enveloped within the mass of bodies, Kenneth lifted high on his toes and peered over the others. He reckoned that Joran would be nearby, and that it would be best to know of the large Vikings' whereabouts. He wanted to know two other things, where their leader was located, and what part of the fortress was most vulnerable. With the fort yet to be completed, certain areas would be easier to breach than others. Finding them soon would be wise. Being no taller than most of the Scots and a few inches shorter than the majority of the Vikings, Kenneth found standing tiptoe improved his view. He slowly turned his frame and surveyed the area while trying not to draw attention to himself. He scanned the courtyard for Jorand. The lumbering giant would surely have a score to settle. As Kenneth's eyes combed the grounds of the fort, he spotted several Vikings exiting a long wooden structure built into the north wall of the fort. Likely barracks, Kenneth presumed. The outpouring Vikings moved to the center of the courtyard and formed a row in front of a six-foot-high platform sitting square in the middle of the fort. Moments later, Kodron ascended the platform stairs. A hush entered the fort, and every eye turned to the elevated structure. Jorand and two other men followed behind Kodron. The four men stood proud, peering down at the captives below, as if they were gods or guardians of a god. It was then that Halfton climbed the wooden stairs and stepped to the platform's center. He stood amid the four men, two to his left and two to his right, while a backdrop of grey clouds filled the distant sky behind him. Kenneth recognized the man in the center. Kenneth had seen him when Aidan and Nessa were tied and marching in a line, yet he hadn't seen him since he'd regained consciousness after his fight with Jorand on the cliff. Kenneth could only assume the Viking leader had seen him unconscious, or at least had been told about Kenneth. Either way, he was certain this man was the one who gave the orders for his chains. Kenneth lifted his shackles eye level. He stared at the cold metal bands and then shifted his gaze to the man on the platform. He already hated the man, without a doubt, he was the head of the snake. Standing on the elevated platform above the crowd of Vikings and Scots, Halfton gazed forward, indulging himself and basking in his conquest. He smirked, and pride oozed from his smug countenance. The Viking leader then focused his eyes on the filthy, half-starved captives standing below him. People of this land, you were once your own. That has changed. You may have had kings or lords. You may have served them in pleasure or disdain, but now, you will serve me. You now belong to me. 
he raised his arms in the air as if welcoming their reception. I am Halfdan the Black, son of Gudrod the Hunter. We come from a distant land. We are the Norse people, and as you can see, we are a strong people. My fathers visited this land many years prior. We have learned that you are a stiff-necked people, but we have found, with the right coaxing, you can be taught to serve, and serve well. Halfton began to move back and forth along the length of the platform. My servants. Make yourselves comfortable here. As you can see, we are working to finish this great fortress that stands as a beacon of Norse strength. Much work has been done and much work remains. And those who have come before you have grown weak. He gestured toward the prisoners gathered along the south wall of the fort. Your strength is needed. We have many trees to drop and many stones to move. Consider this your new home. I encourage you to make the most of it. His men laughed at the insult. If all goes well, you will live out your lives here, if things don't go well, your lives will quickly end here. Kenneth's rage swelled like a tidal wave. With every word the man uttered, he hated him more. He flexed his arms and pulled against his iron clasps. When they refused to release, he cursed them. Thunder roared in the distance. Night was coming and bringing with it a summer storm. Halfton continued, you will begin your work to finish this fortress starting tomorrow. You will bring logs and stones as required to fortify the walls. When the structure is complete, we will move deeper into your heartland, and you will begin the process over again. Slowly but certainly, you and your clans will build a host of fortresses for the Norse people. Today, I am your lord, and in time, I shall be your king. Your people have only heard with their ears of the terror of the Vikings now they shall see it with their eyes. Halfton heralded his words like a self-proclaimed deity. And with every passing moment, Kenneth wished more earnestly that his father would crest the eastern hill with a thousand angry Scots, descend upon the arrogant maniac, and send him to hell. Kenneth took a deep breath and promised himself that he would not live to see the completion of the fort. He would either see to its destruction or die destroying it, but he would not take part in the overthrow of his people. Of this, he was certain. Thunder rumbled once more in the western sky. Halfton glanced upward before continuing, Men of Dalriada, you have the freedom to walk and move about as you please, within the confines of your apportioned lot. Halfton gestured again, this time toward the large, prison-like area that was bound by ten-foot posts sunk in the ground and tied together in the fort's southeast corner. But I warn you, disobedience, insurrection, or any attempt to escape will be met with grave consequences. You will lose any trace of freedom and quite likely your life. Halfton turned toward the guard at the base of the stairs. Where is the one in chains? Bring him forward. When the words hit Kenneth's ears, a wave of shock jolted through his body. Four guards pressed through the crowd and parted the captives, forming a gap between Kenneth and the platform. A shove came from behind and Kenneth stumbled forward. A second shove followed. Kenneth tripped, then regained his footing and moved toward the platform. He was twenty feet from the wooden structure when he stopped and met eyes with Halfton. So, this is the man who sought to be a hero, and yet he is merely a boy, Halfton mocked. His Vikings cheered. Halfton glared at Kenneth and chided, Courage? You think you possess it, yet you mistake it for foolishness, for you are a fool. You dare to pry my possessions from my hands. And what did you gain, a dead Scot and a life in chains? you will regret your foolishness. 
your irons will be a reminder to you and your people, that those who aspire to bravery, those who wish to challenge, will be brought low. Know this, everything you once possessed has been taken from you, and anything that remains is now mine. Halfton glared over the dismal faces of the broken captives. Not a soul spoke a word. Take away the prisoners, he uttered with a stone face. See them to their lot. He strode across the platform, descended the stairs, and departed toward his quarters at the rear of the fort. Kenneth could not remove his eyes from the man. He had seen for himself the face of evil. Rain suddenly began to fall, and Kenneth remained where he stood while a heavy drizzle soaked into his garments. Within moments his entire body was drenched. The guards moved among the captives and prodded them like animals, pushing them through the pooling puddles toward the entrance of the prison. One by one, they filed inside behind its wooden posts. A Viking guard shoved Kenneth, rousing him from his trance. Kenneth moved forward, shadowed by the guard, until he found himself behind the prison barrier. The few pieces of tent cloth that hung overhead, did little to protect the captives from the pouring rain. Of equally poor benefit was the scattered straw strewn throughout the pen. It provided no great relief from the saturated, muddy ground. Though the prison pen was filled with Scots, including those from Renton, Kenneth spoke to no one. Solitude was all he sought and solitude was all he found. He sat down at the base of a large post that served to anchor the prison wall. He ignored the pool of water below him. He recalled the last time he saw such heavy rain. It was not so long ago, yet now the memory seemed like a distant time and place. How quickly it all had changed. 